Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. And Dr. Scripture, in a previous program, we were discussing recent responses to the creation evolution mock trial that you participated in at Northern Kentucky University in 2008. Yes, there's been several responses, both uh, immediately after the trial and then now here even very recently. Uh, We read a letter to the editor in the Notre Dame magazine of spring 2009 and to uh, get everybody up to date as far as what was actually said. First, let me point out that what this demonstrates is really something that the movie Expelled made Mm -hmm. so clear, that there is just a real overall desire to simply censor any kind of opinion or statements contrary to evolution. Lee Sutner, a 61 graduate from Notre Dame who was a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington, wrote this letter to the Notre Dame magazine in response to them in a previous magazine simply mentioning that I had been involved in this mock trial at Northern Kentucky University. And he asked, what criteria are used to choose which alumni are included in the domers in the news column? With mention of Ben Scripture, 98 PhD, and his service as a defense witness at a mock trial on creation science, quote-unquote, perhaps the mother of all oxymorons. Let me stop right there. You notice that even when it's mentioned, they can't help themselves but put some kind of just derogatory statement in there, just an insult. Anyway, with the mention of Ben Scripture as a witness at a mock trial on creation science, the mother of all oxymorons, at Northern Kentucky University, obviously you have set the bar at its lowest possible level. Wish he'd tell us how he really feels. (laughs) Yeah, Given this kind of a response, we're seeing that strict adherence to evolution can't tolerate even any kind of discussion about mm-hmm. it. They, they want any response to evolution to be essentially silenced and censored. You encountered some of that at the mock trial itself, didn't you? I sure did. This is a recent response, but it was interesting. After the trial, they opened up the audience to questions and answers. And some of them were a lot of statements about just how they thought the trial went. Mm. But some of them were actually questions directed to myself or to the other expert witness for the defense, the evolutionist atheist uh, gentleman, Mr. Kagan. So there were lots of different questions and answers going on. But one of the questions that was directed to me initially was a gentleman stood up and asked me if there were any evidences for macroevolution, since the entire theory of evolution depends on this idea of new structures being evolved and a fish turning into lizards and things like that. That would fall under this purview of what we call macroevolution. Maybe we need to define that a little bit better, the term macroevolution. That's a good question, Scott. So let me read a couple of definitions. Where do you go to find definitions, current definitions? The internet. That's what I've done. (laughs) And so I suggest listeners, you know, you want to find out what's out there, just go on the internet, Google it, type in macroevolution or definition. Here's one off of evolution.unibi.ch teaching on glossary. It's, you'll find it. (laughs) Here we go. A vague term for the evolution of great phenotypic changes, usually great enough to allocate the changed lineage and its descendants to a distinct genus or higher taxon. Scary as I almost recognize what they were talking about there. Well, well, good, Scott. (laughs) I find it scary when they say a vague term. Yes. (laughs) But you know what? It's good that they say that because it is vague. It's all over the map, the idea of what macroevolution actually is. But I like this one from the perspective that they're saying that these are changes, not at just the species level, turning one species into another, but larger changes, turning genus of one kind into a genus of another, and we would really then begin to call those big changes, one kind into Mm -hmm. another. 
say, for example, rats into mice. Ah. Or what would really be a big change would be like mice into bats. Mm. And stay tuned because we're going <laughs> to actually be dealing with that in some detail. But let me give another definition. This is on nationalzoo.edu. Larger changes in evolution, such as when a new species is formed or a mass extinction. So that's a little more vague and not as clear. And here's the third one that I think is the best for what we're talking about today. This is on www.talkorigins.org. Macroevolution is defined as evolution on the grand scale, resulting in the origin of higher taxa that are you know, very different kinds of organisms. In evolutionary theory, it thus entails common ancestry, descent with modification, the genealogical relatedness of all life, transformation of species, large-scale functional and structural changes. And I want to focus on that, the large-scale structural changes. When we're dealing with macroevolution, especially in this discussion, that's what we're talking about. We are talking about big changes in structures of organisms, gills turning into lungs, limbs turning into wings and things like that, not just change of color or change mm -hmm. in immunology. You know, somebody is immune to a disease and so they can survive smallpox and uh, another population isn't and so they're all wiped out. That's not macroevolution. That's just literally antibodies that we're talking about, different kinds of proteins that someone might have. That's the idea of macroevolution. This gentleman asked me whether there are any examples of it and the short and simple of it is no. <laughs> and I explained that a little bit, but basically I responded, no, there are no examples of macroevolution in the uh, scientific literature. We can't point to anything that would support macroevolution. So then the questioner turned to Mr. Kagan, and he had been doing some research on Mr. Kagan's website, and he came up with a quote that Mr. Kagan had. This was the quote he said, if you can't prove that something is so or not so, then it's not worthy of belief, unquote. Then the questioner asked Mr. Kagan, if we haven't proven or seen any macroevolution, and it's only been inferred, like intelligent design has been inferred, why then is it macroevolution worthy of belief, Mr. Kagan? And Mr. Kagan then got up and responded this way, and I'll quote what he has to say. He said, because it has been proved, ask a scientist. Don't have a pooling of ignorance with other people who don't know any more than you do. Ask somebody who does know how to sort through evidence and facts, unquote. This reminds me of the letter you read at the beginning of the program. It's the same kind of approach, Scott. Essentially, what you do is you just denigrate the person who has a different opinion. You don't offer any evidence. He just says, well, ask a scientist. And of course, the inference there is, I'm not a scientist. I, I'm ignorant. We should point out, Kagan, there was no scientific credentials in his bio. That's right. And he's just quoting other scientists. But he assumes that based on what other scientists say, that's true and there is macroevolution and you just need to ask somebody other than myself. <laughs> and it is interesting. He says, ask somebody who does know how to sort through evidence and facts. Well, then immediately another person stood up, a person who uh, would be considered a scientist who can sort through evidence and facts. We've actually got the audio from the trial, the discussion mm -hmm. afterwards, so let's have the audience actually hear what the next person then had to say and how she responded. My name's Dr. Hazel Barton. I'm the endowed professor of integrated science at NKU. I'm also an evolutionary biologist. I do molecular evolution. And there actually have been several instances of macroevolution. Bat wings are a classic example. If you mutate one protein, in a mouse, it will create limbs that look, for all intents and purposes, like bat wings. And the um, rapid appearance of bats within the paleontological record has been explained by this mutation, which is easy to induce. 
So that was Dr. Hazel Barton. Let me repeat what she said. She said, if you mutate one protein in a mouse, it will create limbs that look, for all intents and purposes, like bat wings. Now, Scott, what kind of a picture does that conjure up in your mind when you think about this mutated mouse? I picture these spreading membranes, like she says, on a bat, where you can flap around and fly. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of picture that that 200-member audience walked out of there with, this idea that, wow, one protein mutation, and this mouse now essentially has what looked like bat wings. I had never heard of this classic example that she used. Generally, something classic means it's been studied and has been known for some (laughs) period of time. So I couldn't even respond to it. Obviously, I had big doubts in my mind. But what I was able to do, of course, after the trial and after all this discussion, I went back into the literature to find out what she was talking about. And this is what I found, Scott. This was an article published in Genes and Development in January 15th of 2008. So the trial was in October, this was in January, so this particular result was now classic. (laughs) It was less than 10 months earlier. The title of the article was Regulatory Divergence Modifies Limb Length Between Mammals. Let me interpret. They did some genetic mutation in a mouse, and it made its forelimbs a different size. The idea being they're comparing mouse and bat Ah. forelimbs. Mouse legs, bat (laughs) wings. I don't want to really go into the specifics of that scientific paper. It's very, very uh, difficult. So what I'll do then is read some interpretations in the news based on the results of this experimentation. Here's an article in Science News published uh, shortly after the Genes and Development article. The title was, When Mice Fly, (laughs) Bat DNA Leads to Longer Limbs in Mouse Embryos. And here's some interpretation of, from that article. By outfitting mice with a chunk of DNA that directs wing development in bats, scientists have created rodents with abnormally long forelimbs, mimicking one of the steps in the evolution of the bat wing. Now, if we stop right there, are you already getting maybe a little different picture from what Dr. Barton said about basically, for all intents and purposes, bat wings? We're just talking about length here. Now we're talking about length. Well, now let me go on to read more specifically about what they actually accomplished in these experiments. The mutant embryo limbs, talking about Mm -hmm. unborn mice that they put this mutation from the bat into, the mutant embryo limbs grew slightly longer than those of normal mice. When measured a couple of days before birth, the difference in forearm length was just 6%, a few tenths of a millimeter. Let me stop there. Listener, can you make a millimeter between your thumb and forefinger? We are talking about a few tenths of a millimeter. That's the difference in length. But they appeared consistently in dozens of mice, says Behringer, whose team reports in their findings in the 2008 Genes and Development article. The cells that make bones also divided slightly faster in the mice with the bat DNA. Six weeks after birth, however, the forelimbs of both kinds of mice had become similar in length. So... At six weeks old, you could not tell the mutant mice from the regular mice. And yet this lady said that for all intents and purposes, the mutant mice had bat wings. Now, Dr. Barton knew exactly what she was saying. As I looked more into her background, she's not just a molecular biologist studying evolution. She is a bat expert. Mm. So she uh, knew precisely that what she was saying was distorting the evidence in a wild fashion. (laughs) Distorting. Uh, Well, I'm no scientist, but where I come from, that's called a lie. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it, Scott, to give the people an impression that these mice had wings. But this really relates to something that the Bible tells us about the current conditions In Romans chapter 1, in verse 21, 
it says this, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God Mm -hmm. or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Talk about speculations. It's (laughs) wild, isn't it, to say that that actually equals a bat wing? They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now listen to what it says here then, verse 25 of Romans 1. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, listener, I want you to be aware that they don't play fair if they consider it a game. (laughs) And uh, you shouldn't be surprised at the level of literally lying they will use to uh, try and continue to defend a dead lie. As Romans says, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.